Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. I don't know about you, but 2020 has been somewhat of a wake-up call for me, uh, kind of a, a gut check at times. Um, it's been hard. It's been challenging on, on various levels, right? I mean, in our, in our culture, uh, dealing with this coronavirus, uh, politically, a lot of tension in the air. Um, it might hit home in your family, maybe the stress of, of dealing with all the changes. Perhaps it's internally. Maybe you've been dealing with a lot of anxiety, maybe some anger and, and frustration. Whatever it is, quite frankly, we're tired of it. Like stubborn kids, we just uh, we want to... We wanna get rid of this. Uh, we're, we're tired of it. Uh, we, we don't want to put up with it anymore. And we just want to get back to normal. Some of us here are disappointed. We've been dealing with uh, kind of just this uh, seed of disappointment in us for a while. Uh, some of us, it's, it's kind of grown into some discouragement. And then even others of us were starting to drift away from God. And we don't even realize it. We're drifting away from God, and there's, there's this internal dialogue that's going on in our minds. We would never say it out loud, but this is kind of what it sounds like. If you would do this, God, then I will this. But until then, I'm going to keep doing this. Right? And so fill in the blank. Be honest this morning. What is it for you? you know, if, if you would, if you just fix everything, you know, get us back to normal, then I would be happy. But until then, I'm going to be grumpy. I'm going to be frustrated. And if you just get our kids through the school year uh, safely, you know, then, then I would be at peace. Until then, I'm just going to be anxious. All sorts of different things we play out in our minds, kind of this game of bargaining with God. And we just want to get back to normal. We want normal. We want comfortable. We want something better, don't we? We've returned to work. We've returned to school. Many of us returned to church. And now we just want to return back to normal. We want to get back to what we had. And guys, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Because today we're going to begin this new series in the book of Malachi. And it's very relevant for our lives. The situation that these people find themselves in, we can relate to. And so let me give you kind of the backstory leading up to uh, Malachi. So 1000 BC, King David is reigning on his throne over Israel, and things are flourishing underneath his leadership. He is a successful king. Uh, the, the whole kingdom is safe. But under his son Solomon, years later, the nation divides the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The Syrians begin to attack the northern kingdom and wipe them out. And in the south, not too much later, the Babylonians conquer over Judah. And this is God's discipline of his people for their sin. They are exiled out of the promised land. 
And finally, around 500 BC, there's a remnant that returned back to Jerusalem and began to restore the city, restore the temple underneath Nehemiah and Ezra's leadership. But even though decades have passed, things haven't turned out quite the way they had hoped. They wanted the glory days to return. And yet they were still struggling and still suffering financially, politically, in their families. We can sum it up by saying they were just frustrated. They thought God had failed them and forgotten them. All these promises had not been fulfilled. And so there were a lot of disappointment and discouragement, anger, even cynicism was growing in the hearts of the people of God. We're not going to put up with this anymore, God. Many of them started to drift away, half-hearted, just going through the motions, spiritual motions. If we could get a window into their heart, it might sound like this. God, if you would just fix our circumstances, then we'll fix our attitudes. But until then, we're going to be frustrated with you. And here's God's response. I haven't changed. You have. I haven't forgotten you. You have. You've forgotten me. I haven't failed you. You have failed me. I haven't drifted from you. You've drifted from me. And yet here's, here's the good news. Here's the good news of Malachi. God says, if you return to me, I will return to you. That's the key verse in Malachi 3, 6, and 7. Kind of sums up this book, and that's why we put it right out here, this phrase. I want that to be stamped on your mind each week. God is saying, return to me. In Malachi 3, he says this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And so listen, over the next seven weeks, as we walk through and make our way through Malachi, it's not so much about us returning to normal. It's about us returning to God. You see, before he changes our circumstances, he wants to change our hearts. He wants to change our attitudes, to see our sin, but even more than that, to see that we have been loved beyond measure, and then to be humbled by his love, to be grateful for his love, and to tremble at his love, to tremble that you and I are loved by God. So if you've got a Bible this morning, Open up to Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And so if you come to uh, Matthew, the first book, just go back one. You'll get to Malachi. If you don't have one with you, that's okay. The words will be up there on the screen and back in me. Malachi chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 to 5. This is the word of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So let's go back to verse 1. This is the heading, kind of the introduction to the book. Verse 1 says, the oracle, the oracle. 
Literally, this means the burden, the, the burden. Now, why, why does he call it a burden? Two reasons. One, this is weighty. This word here is, is weighty. This is very heavy. This is going to be hard for some of us to hear. It's a weighty word. Number two, it won't be received by everybody. Some of you who are drifting away from God, this may be difficult for you to receive. This is a burden from God to us. The oracle of the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. So this is a revelation from God. This is not about God, this is from God. This is God speaking to us. That's what his word is. It's him revealing himself to us. And so when we gather here on a Sunday morning, we're here to listen to God speak to us. He's revealed himself to us, the word of the Lord. Who is it to? It's to Israel, God's chosen people. But under the new covenant, that includes us. If we are in Christ this morning, which means we have admitted our sin and believed in Jesus Christ alone and confessed him to be the Lord of our lives, this is for us today, even those of us who are slipping away and feeling like failures. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, Malachi. Now his name means my messenger, my messenger. So he's, he's simply the messenger here, and it's interesting, we don't know anything else about him in the Bible, he's never mentioned anywhere else. He's, he's just called the messenger, my messenger. And another interesting observation is that the Old Testament ends with my messenger, Malachi, and it begins with my messenger, John the Baptist. And both, both, they just want to preach God's message and prepare God's people, get out of the way and die and be forgotten. And that's really my heart as well. I just want to preach God's message, prepare you to meet Jesus, whether that's when you die or when he returns, and just die and be forgotten. I could care less if you remember me. I want you to remember what he says here to you today. And so let's jump in. Let's jump in. Now, one of the things you're going to notice right away is how this book is structured. It reads kind of like a conversation between God and his people. All right, so this is how it goes. God starts the conversation. His, his people question him, and then God answers in return. So it's this statement, question, answer. It happens six times in this book. And every time, listen, every time, God is inviting inviting his people, he's inviting you and me to return, to come back to him in renewed devotion and trust and obedience. And so let's take a look at verse two and how God initiates the conversation. I have loved you, says the Lord. I've loved you. Now the way Malachi begins is significant, it matters. It sets the tone for the rest of the book. Because what's going to happen in the subsequent verses and chapters is that God is going to get into your business. He's going to get into your brokenness because he loves you. You've had a friend like that, I hope, in your life, if you don't, pray for one, who's not afraid to give you the hard answer, not the one that kind of pats you on the back, but is willing to say the hard thing because he or she loves you. Well, God loves you, and so he's speaking directly to you through this book. So God begins, though, by saying, I have loved you. And here's why. He wants you to know that all of this is couched in love. 
He's confronting us and correcting us because he loves us. So he says, I've loved you, I always have, I always will, even when life is hard, I will never fail you, right? My, my love will never run out on you. And we know this is a precious truth that runs all throughout the Bible. This is, this is a theme, a driving theme of the Bible. So let me just give you a few examples where we see this in scripture. So Exodus 34 verse six says, the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jeremiah 31 verse three says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. New Testament, Ephesians 2, four and five. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Romans 8, 38 to 39, for I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, the love of God, it's all over the Bible, but in particular, for these people, in their context, they should have remembered this verse in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse eight. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so they should have remembered that. They should have remembered that God loved them and redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And yet time and time again, it's the pattern of God's people, it is, it's, it's the pattern of God's people to face circumstances where they don't feel loved, right? We know it to be true, we just don't feel like it's true. We're not moved by it, and so we move away from it. In tough times, trying circumstances, we're prone to move away from God, to move away from his word, to move away from his church. In the process, we remove ourselves from the fellowship of God's people, and we start to grow angry and frustrated and cynical inside. We begin to slowly drift away spiritually. Some of you have been probably swimming in the ocean, and before you know it, you're drifting out to sea. How did it happen? It happened slowly, without you realizing it. Some of you in this room, you are drifting spiritually away from God, and God is calling you back to himself. Just like the people in Malachi's day, we have high expectations for God. We want him to come through for us, to give us a comfortable life, and when he does not, we're disappointed. For these people, they wanted a restored life, a restored temple, restored national prosperity, and when he didn't come through for them, they were disappointed. In fact, they started doubting his love. They questioned God's love for them. Look at verse two again with me. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So God says, I've loved you, and we say, no you don't. Prove it. It's like we're stubborn little kids with this sense of entitlement, right? And we, can, we can see this in our kids, we can't see it in ourselves, but, but we're big kids. 
spiritually sometimes, especially when we go through disappointments. So let me ask you this, is it wrong then to question God? Sometimes, but not always. We can ask questions of God with humility and sincerity, but when we have this questioning spirit about us, we're filled with pride, right, in this anger and frustration with God. We can all relate to that when we feel disappointed in life. And so how does God respond to us as stubborn children? How did he respond to these people when they were questioning his love? Well, to put it bluntly, not how we would think. Look at verses two and three again. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And so, so we want to say, well, what kind of answer is that, God? I mean, that took me by surprise. We didn't see that coming. You would expect him to say something like, well, look at all the great things I've done for you, right? How I've provided for you. Remember the Red Sea and how I rescued you in the wilderness, how I took care of you? But, but he goes back even further into redemptive history all the way back to the book of Genesis where he chose Abraham. He goes all the way back into redemptive history to show us the key to his love. So as you may recall, Abraham, he was a, he was a nomad, he was a, he was a nobody when God chose him, saved him, called him to himself, and promised to give him a son. And so Abraham and Sarah in their old age had a son named Isaac. Isaac grew up and got married to a woman named Rebecca. They had two sons, as you remember, Jacob and Esau, and they were twins. They were fraternal twins, and they were very different. Something I can relate to. Many of you know I have a twin brother. He's a missionary in Japan. Some would say, well, missionary pastor, and that's about the same thing. But we've got very different personalities. I think we look a lot different. At least I think we're a lot different. But we're not as different as these two. Jacob and Esau. If you remember back in Genesis 25 to 27, you can go back there and read it later, Esau comes out first, and he's, he's hairy. He's got red hair all over him, like a little Elmo or something. Jacob, he comes out second, and he's got smooth skin. Now Esau, as you remember, they named him Esau because that word meant hairy. And they named Jacob Jacob because he was grabbing the heel of his brother. He was a heel grabber. And so Jacob means heel grabber. Can you imagine being named like that by your parents? That was cruel. Harry and heel grabber. Now their personalities were, were pretty different as well. As you recall, Esau, he liked the outdoors. He liked hunting. And Jacob was just the opposite. He liked the indoors and he liked cooking. But here's the thing. Both of them grew up and they weren't good boys. They were bad boys. That's what they had in common. Basically, they grew up, Jacob was a liar. He was a schemer. His brother Esau was an impulsive and vengeful fighter. And as the story unfolds, we see Jacob, he's kind of messing with his brother, right? Manipulating his brother and tricking his father into giving him the blessing and the birthright that belonged to Esau as the firstborn son. But nevertheless, God still chooses Jacob, sets his love upon Jacob. In fact, he had chosen him before he was even born. As the scriptures say, the older is going to serve the younger. 
So we look at that story, and they go on. These two boys uh, kind of represent two nations, the nation of Israel and Edom. And God chooses to love and work through Israel, and he chooses to reject and oppose Edom. And at first glance, when we look at this, honestly, we ask the question, why is God so mad at Esau? Why is he so angry with Edom? I mean, if God is God of love, I mean, how could he hate anyone, right? It's a good question to ponder. But don't let this language confuse you. This is, this is called covenantal language. And so the way this word love is used, it's not about feelings. It's not about affections. And hate here is not about hostility or animosity. No, love here refused to God's choosing, and hate refused to God's withholding. So when God says, I have loved you, and we respond with, well, how have you loved us? God's answer essentially is, I have chosen you. I wanted you. You belong to me. And here's the kicker. I chose you and wanted you before you had done anything good or evil. I mean, this is totally unconditional love, not because of anything in you. Paul, the apostle, picks up the same theme in Romans chapter 9. He actually quotes from Malachi in making his point about God's free and sovereign election of his people. In Romans chapter 9, we read these words in verses 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born, note that, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here's what Malachi and Paul are saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Get this. When God chooses us and sets his love upon us, it has nothing to do with us. When God chooses us and sets his love upon us, it has nothing to do with us. If it were up to us, we would not choose him and we could not choose him. This is the doctrine of total depravity. It is a teaching that is hard for us to swallow. I don't have time to elaborate. I'm just going to get into two verses that show this to be true. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it says this about us prior to our salvation. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Notice, indeed, it cannot. Apart from Jesus in his work of saving us by his grace, we do not want to submit to God in his word. In fact, we cannot do it on our own. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is prior to your salvation. All of us were spiritually dead. Dead people can't make choices on their own. They've got to be made alive by Jesus, so he takes the initiative to breathe new life in us and calls us to himself and gives us the gift of faith to say, yes, I believe in you. It's God's work in salvation. And initially, we don't like this doctrine of election. Here's why, at least two reasons. Number one, we don't see how depraved we are. If you think you're basically a good person in this room today, you won't understand the Bible at all. You won't understand your need for a savior. 
we don't see how depraved we are. Secondly, most of us grew up in Iowa. Why do I say that? <laughs> it's not a bad thing. I grew up in Iowa. Well, we have this achievement performance mindset as Iowans. We value hard work, don't we? And that's a good thing, but a bad thing when it comes to our salvation. Think about this as you grew up. Some of you grew up on the farm, hard work. Farmer works hard. What happens? He reaps a harvest. You students, you work hard in school. What happens? You get good grades. You get a scholarship. Athletes, you train hard. You practice hard. You win the game, right? So, so that's all wired in us. But listen, God loves you before you could work hard and perform. You don't get on his team by working hard. You can't work for your salvation. And here's where we should just be amazed by the love of God. No one has ever loved us like God does. Absolutely unique. I mean, the closest thing on earth we can compare it to is adoption. Mom and dad decide we want to adopt this little boy, this little girl that no one else wants. That little boy, little girl didn't choose his or her parents because of their love and their affection and to bring them out of these dire straits. This little boy, this little girl's life has changed forever. God's love is a lot like that. But even then, we can't compare it on a human level. This is even greater. God set his love on Jacob, his covenant of love. He chose Jacob before he had been born. And the point is this, listen, the point is this. Jacob didn't deserve it, and neither do we. We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve his grace. Here's what we do deserve. We deserve what's laid out in verses 3 to 4. Look there with me again. But Esau I have hated, I have laid waste his hill country, and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So listen, you, you gotta see this, you gotta see this. God highlights his love for his people here by contrasting it with his hatred for the nation of Edom. And I know these are hard and heavy words. It's tough. To sum it up, here's what God is saying about Edom. He opposes them. He, he opposes their prosperity and will bring their land under judgment. Secondly, he will give them up to wickedness he will wreak havoc on their lives and let them wreak havoc on their own lives and just give them up to the sin that they want to be in. Thirdly, he will be angry with them forever. He's going to withhold his love because of their sin and disobedience. And that, that is hard to swallow. I, and there's some mystery to this, right? Why God does what he does. But in essence, I don't want you to miss this. Here's what God is saying. The way that you're going to be blown away and moved again by the love of God is not only being reassured of how he's chosen you, but to be reminded of what you deserve. To be reminded of what you deserve, what I deserve. In other words, God wants you to consider two things as we close. Listen, he wants you to consider two things as we close. Here they are. The life you have versus the life you deserve. Think about this for a moment. Just ponder this. The life you have versus the life that you deserve. Let's begin with the life that you have. If you're a Christian, and that's, 
That's a term that we kind of just throw around a lot. It's not just if you kind of just, yeah, 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 I know all that Jesus stuff and I've gone to church. This is if you have sincerely come to a place where you recognize I have sinned against a holy God and I must repent of my sin and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for my, for my sins to be taken. And then for me to have the righteousness of Jesus and to inherit eternal life. If that's happened to you, if you're a sincere follower of Jesus, the life you have is all owing to God's love for you in Christ. Listen, God chose you. He wanted you. He adopted you, he called you, he's forgiven you, he embraces you, he accepts you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. That ought to humble you. That ought to make you grateful. If not, I wanna ask, have you asked this question? Where would I be today apart from Jesus? You should think about that for a moment. What was your life like before Jesus came and changed it? Where would I be apart from Jesus? It sought to humble you, make you grateful, and cause you to tremble. To tremble that you're loved. Why do I use that word tremble? It's because we've got to consider the life that we deserve. Consider what you've been spared from. I mean, just like the Edomites, we deserve for God to be angry with us forever. That's what we deserve. In other words, we deserve hell. This past week, my family and I, we do dinner devotions. Um, I think it's called Family Dinner Devotions by Nancy Guthrie. And uh, we sometimes take turns. All of, we, we got readers now so everybody can read. September 10th, the, the title on the top of the page of this devotional was simply one word, hell. Now, I don't know about you, if you're a, a dad or a mom, would you just flip the page when you saw that title? What are you going to do? Have you ever talked to your kids about this? Have you ever considered it yourself? We use this term so flippantly, don't we? Man, he played a hell of a game. We just, we don't even think about the reality of this word and what it means. I looked at my kids, teary-eyed. You can't talk about hell and not get tears in your eyes. And earnestly told them about the realities of hell. And we know heaven is forever, right? It's eternal, but so is hell. There's no end to this punishment. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. If we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to go there, wait, wait, wait. But it's real. Jesus spoke about it a lot because he loved you and wanted to warn you. Listen, this is what we deserve. A lot of times, and I look at my kids and I think, guys, why are you so frustrated? You're always complaining. Don't you realize what you have? And then I look at myself. Why am I always complaining? Don't you know what you have? Do you know what you deserve, Doug? You deserve hell. That's what you deserve. Here's the good news. In Christ, we get what we don't deserve, right? We get what we don't deserve. We get mercy and love and grace without end, right? It's everlasting in heaven. It's forever. So tremble that you're loved. It's 
people that you're loved. Never take it for granted. Let me end with this. This week, I saw someone post this on their Facebook page. 2020 is better than we deserve. And I looked at that, I did not like it. (laughs) At all. (laughs) But it's true. I thought he's exactly right. What we deserve is far worse than dealing with this coronavirus and all the frustrations that have come with it and dealing with the culture that we live in right now and all of the turmoil, all of our family issues, all of our internal frustrations. What we deserve is far worse. We deserve punishment from God. God is getting our attention. He's getting our attention. This is a wake-up call. Return to me. Return to me. On the flip side, you know what this also means? It means we have plenty of reasons to rejoice, right? 10,000 reasons for my heart to find? So listen, and I'm, I'm preaching this to myself right now. Don't be bitter about 2020. Don't be angry about 2020. Don't turn this into something about you. Here's why. Verse 5. God says, your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You see, they needed to to get their eyes off themselves and onto God, and so do we. You see, this, this pandemic, this year, this life is not ultimately about you. It's about the greatness of God and his love for you that stretches beyond the borders of your little life. In this little church, in this little community, in this little country, great is the Lord beyond the borders of the United States. He's doing something great all over the globe for his glory. And so, rather than want so badly to return to normal, let's return to God today. Let's return to God. God says, return to me, and I will return to you. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled that you have loved us this way. All of us in this room, me included, we have fallen short of your glory. We have sinned against you. And you have come after us, pursuing us in your love, drawing us to yourself, Jesus, you died in our place, taking our punishment that we deserve. And you are risen victoriously from the grave. You've overcome death, sin, and Satan. You're ruling on your throne now. And we rejoice now for a little while as we experience these trials of this life. We look forward to the day And it's coming soon when you return. Until then, we want to return to you. So wake us up. Cause us to be stirred on the inside now. And to come to you humbly, just as we are, knowing that you love us. You are a good, good father that loves us.
and draws us back to yourself. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing.